that's on the cross. And, and the more I get into this, I realize that we could, we could spend uh, year after year after year talking about all the things that Jesus did for us on the cross and, and just all the, uh, the peace, the love, the joy, the freedom, the forgiveness, all the things that, that Jesus died for and, and what we receive. I, you know, I think a lot of times um, I used to have just this, this feeling of this opinion that uh, Jesus died for me on the cross and that, you know, my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven when I die. And that's, and that's pretty much it. And I'm realizing the, the more I get into this, that there's just this immense, this immense, uh, uh, feel this immense area of grace that, that uh, Jesus gives us. And we're talking this morning about freedom, in case you didn't get it from the worship team. I mean, they just did an awesome job of, of focusing us, beginning to focus on freedom this morning. Uh, Pastor Merle's going to com- continue to focus on freedom next Sunday. But I'm going to be talking this morning about freedom from law and freedom from religion. So let's, uh, uh, Sarah, if you could try to put that first slide up there. Uh, yeah, there we go. Great. So uh, the name of our series is Living a Transformed Life, and, and we're talking this morning about uh, freedom from law and freedom from religion. Now, it may surprise you coming into a church that we say that we're not religious or we try not to be religious. Uh, most people associate churches and religion with the same thing. And, and, uh, and so what I want to say this morning is what I believe about religion is that religion involves us, mankind, people trying to reach out to God. And religion is all about working to earn the favor of a God. And, and religion involves men and women trying to become acceptable to God or trying to please God. Religion involves earning God's favor. And, you know, the ancient times, people worship not just one God, maybe many gods, idols, and, and, and uh, people would associate uh, things in nature like volcanoes or earthquakes or storms, even lightning, uh, as interpreting that the gods must be angry. And so we've got to do something to appease the gods. We must do something to make the gods happy. So we have to do things. We must sacrifice to them. We must show them how good we are. We must show them how worthy we are. And then uh, the, the result of that is if I'm good enough and if I look good enough, uh, that the gods will bless me and, and I'll earn their favor. And if I'm not good enough, then, then God's going to be angry and, and no longer love me and no longer show me uh, his favor or their favor. So a key point to this freedom involves, first of all, who we believe God to be. And, and I want to imagine, I want you to imagine, you got a good imagination this morning? You bring your imagination along. All right. So I want you to imagine that I give you a whiteboard, a piece of paper, a chalkboard, and I ask you, I want you to draw me a picture of God. What's your view of God? You know, and I could imagine, if you have your imagination going this morning, some people might might picture, you know, this kindly old sleepy grandpa floating around up in the clouds who's not very engaged and doesn't pay much attention. And some other people might picture, you know, the stern, angry God who's got lightning bolts in his hand and he's just there ready to zap you if you step over the line, you know. And so there's lots of different pictures that people could have of, of who God is. And, and 
you know, I think we can come away thinking that God is this fickle, ever-changing, angry and grumpy one minute and, and kind and generous the next minute. Stern and strict with lots of rules and regulations. You dare to miss church one Sunday and, and he's going to zap you, you know, stick your one toe over the line and, and bam, you're, you're gone, you're toast. You know, and so I want to get a, us to uh, a clearer understanding of who God is. And I love um, Exodus 34, where God is meeting with Moses and God describes himself. God describes himself to Moses and, and God says, Moses, this is who I am. I'm going to describe myself to you. And, and in Exodus 34, God describes himself, and it says he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how God describes himself. This is who I am, God said to Moses. And also 1 Corinthians 13 where, you know, we, we read this love chapter, and I love to uh, not just read love is patient and love is kind, but I think you could very easily, and, and I don't think it's, it's uh, uh, wrong in the Scripture to substitute the word God for each time love is there. And, and so I believe it'd be completely proper to say God is patient, God is kind, He does not envy, He does not boast, He is not proud, he does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. So we get a clearer picture from Scripture that God isn't this sleepy old grandpa. God isn't this angry God who's, who's sitting in the clouds ready to strike you with his lightning. We have a God who delights in his children, a God who loves, a God who, who laughs. You know, the New Testament painted the picture of, of Jesus who loved to invite people to come to him, children to come to him. And, and so he, could, he would gather them in his arms and sit them on his, on his lap and he could bless them. And, and we have the picture, I think, of a kind and loving God in, in the Bible. In fact, uh, it was Jesus who, who soundly uh, scolded the Jewish leaders of his day 2,000 years ago because of the way they tied people up in knots and their rules and laws and regulations. You can do this, but you can't do that. And you have to uh, do all these, all these regulations. And, and the faith that should have been setting people free was instead putting them into chains, was putting them into bondage. And, you know, I believe that nothing much changes down through the years. In fact, as, as, uh, you know, as we see the years go by, we see history repeating itself. And, and I believe that in, in some ways, uh, religious people keep doing that kind of thing, putting people into bondage with laws and, and, and uh, regulations. History keeps repeating itself. There's a funny story I had about, uh, sort of silly about history repeating itself. Uh, some years ago, I uh, drove here on a, on a weekday morning to come to the office and, and work, and I drove to the church building, and it was the end of the day came, and I was ready to drive back home. I lived like a half mile down the road, for those of you who don't know. 
um, and I was ready to drive back home, and I could not find my car key. Like, okay, I know that I drove my car here this morning. I know I had the key when I got here. But it was time to go, and I could not find the key. And it's like, okay, I know I had it. Search my coat pockets, search my pants pockets, you know, uh, search my desk, search my office. You know, I go out, it, maybe it's still in the car. No, it's not in the car. I traced all the trails that I went through the church building that day, looked at all the floors. It wasn't anywhere there. In fact, I never found it. You know, I walked home, got the spare key, came back, drove the car home, never found the car key. Like, the mystery was never solved. Until years later, I was, still, I was back here again working in my office. Some of you have been in my office upstairs, have a desk, had a, had a love seat near the, uh, near the desk, and had my car key, spare car key, <laughs> laying on the, on the edge of the desk and, and went to rearrange things on my desk, pushed some books uh, to the side, and that spare car key fell off the desk and onto the floor and bounced under the edge of the love seat. And I'm sitting there watching it happen, and I'm thinking, you know, I wonder if that happened once, if that could have happened before. And I scoop my hand under the love seat on the floor, and out come two car keys. It's like, <laughs> wow, history repeats itself, you know? So, uh, and I believe that, that we're talking about religious laws and religious uh, structures and, and people being put under religious rules, that history repeats itself. God, uh, Jesus talked and scolded the Pharisees and religious leaders for putting people under, under laws and all these rules and all these hoops you had to jump through in order to earn God's favor. And, and I believe that that still happens today. And I believe that, that God is offering to many of us this morning a new sense of freedom perhaps that, that we haven't, we haven't uh, had access to yet. People keep getting tied up in religious rules and laws, do's and don'ts, what is permissible and what, what is not permissible. And so the result of that is uh, instead of people enjoying freedom and, and uh, enjoying what, what Jesus give, gives to us, instead our mindset is here's the line and just how far can I stick my toe over that line before God zaps me? You know, uh, one way to refer to the system of a strict and severe God of rules and regulations, earning God's favor with my performance, uh, the one phrase that I'm going to use is, is this phrase called religious spirit. And I want to talk some more about this phrase and what it means in a bit. Uh, I saw... An example of this religious spirit in my own family. Some of you know a little bit about my history. Some of you don't know me from, from Adam. But uh, at extended family reunions, my grandfather and grandmother, David and Rebecca, were forced by the rest of the family to eat at this separate little table over here set aside for them. They couldn't eat at, at a table with the rest of the family. Uh, why? because the religious system that was in place was officially shunning them uh, for the sin of having left the Amish church after they became members. And so the strict religious spirit made them stay apart from the rest of the people who were eating at, at the dinner. 
You know, another example of this kind of spirit is, uh, is this. And I've got lots of stories and illustrations here this morning. Uh, another example is this. Uh, when my kids were young in elementary school, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, I often volunteered in my kids' classes. And, and there was, I, I always noticed that in elementary classes, and maybe this goes up through uh, older people as well, there was always at least one student in the class who somehow appointed themselves to keep a sharp eye out and watch everyone else in the class like a hawk. And why was that? It was to make sure that everyone else followed the rules. I don't know if you've ever seen that kind of thing before. And, and as soon as someone broke the rules, you know, it was like, teacher, she broke the rules. Teacher, he broke the rules. He did something wrong. You know, and if we aren't careful, our Christian community can become places of religious spirit, where it's a place of uh, a community of rules, a place not of grace and love, but of, of finger-pointing and strict and, and legalistic society. I'm using some uh, of Steve Brown's uh, uh, material this morning from his book, A Scandalous Freedom. And he writes in here about a, a man uh, who, who said when he was a Buddhist... He said he felt like he was in the middle of a large lake, and he was drowning, and he didn't know how to swim. And he writes, as I struggled to keep my head above water, I looked out and toward the shore, and I saw Buddha walking up to the edge of the lake. And I was going under the water for the third time when suddenly Buddha began shouting out instructions to me, teaching me how to swim. And Buddha shouted, kick your legs and paddle your arms. And then Buddha said, Lou, you must make it to shore by yourself. And I desperately struggled to follow the instructions of Buddha. But I looked to the shore again, but this time I saw Jesus walking to the edge of the lake. However, Jesus did not stop at the edge of the lake. Jesus dove into the lake, and he swam out, and he rescued me. And once Jesus had brought me back safely to shore, then he taught me how to swim so I could go back and rescue others. You see, this is the key difference, I think, between Christianity and every other religion in the world, is that Christianity is not a religion. So what are religions? Religions are about human attempts to make our lives right with God through our good works, through our sacrifices, through our rituals, through our, our money. This is not what Christianity is. So in contrast, Christianity is about God entering human history, jumping into the lake, to graciously save men and women through his son Jesus. It's about placing our faith in Jesus, submitting to his lordship. The Jews had lots of Old Testament laws. Tradition said that there were 613 Old Testament laws that you had to keep. And you had to check them off. 613 laws that you had to keep. And, and the point of Jewish laws was to try to change you, but laws that change you from the outside in. And I, I don't know if you've heard the, the silly story of the little boy who was in class and standing up, and his teacher said to, uh, to sit down, and he refused, and, and finally the teacher compelled him, forced him to sit down, 
And he sat there and said, I'm sitting down on the outside, but on the inside, I'm, I'm standing up. And, and, you know, like most people, the Jews could not keep all those 613 laws. In fact, God's purpose for the Old Testament, God's purpose for all those laws, was to show the Jews how impossible it was to keep them all 100%, and that something better was coming. Still, some of them tried, and the Pharisees became these experts in the law and, and every tiny law, and they expected everyone else to do the same. And the Pharisees became those, that one person in the class who said, Teacher, he's breaking the law. In the New Testament, we find the solution to the problem. And, and Jesus said, Matthew 5, don't suppose for a minute, this is the message translation, Matthew 5, Jesus said, don't suppose for a minute I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete them. I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. It's a little bit like graduation. When you graduate from high school or graduate from college, um, the point of graduation is to move you on to something better. Uh, the point of the Old Testament law was to always to point to Jesus. Something better is coming. Someone better who was coming. And after you graduate, you don't want to keep going back to school and, and repeat the same things over and over. You want to, uh, you know, when fall rolls around, you don't want to go back to school. You've graduated. Your diploma was like a stamp of done, finished, complete. And that's what Jesus is to the Old Testament law. He said he came to fulfill and finish and complete the Old Testament law. So we no longer live under Old Testament law. 613 laws that you're not living under today. Thank God. Amen. So Jesus, instead of uh, the Old Testament law changing us from the outside and changing our behavior, Jesus wants to change you from the inside out, from the inside out. And Jesus changes your heart, your mind, your mindsets, your attitudes, your hopes, your dreams, your goals, your visions. Jesus changes us from the inside. And a really good example of this is the Old Testament law about tithing. And so just one example out of maybe hundreds. And so this law about tithing said that, that you tithe 10% of what you produce. And over time... In the Old Testament, tithing lost its joy. And tithe became like a, a church tax that you were forced to give. I bet maybe sometimes people gave it with a bad attitude. I bet sometimes people brought their offering, brought their tithe to give, and they were outwardly smiling, but on the inside, and maybe they're gritting their teeth and saying, boy, I sure could have used that money uh, for something else. I could have bought a better fishing boat with that. I could have, I could have done some other really cool things with that money, but, but it's a church tax, and it's the tithe, and I've got to give it, so here you go. I'm going to give it, and, and they're smiling on the outside and, and making, making it really look good, so everyone sees that I'm smiling and I'm tithing, but on the inside, they're just seething and, gr and grumbling and mumbling. And, and Jesus said to the Pharisees and teachers of the law uh, in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees. You're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, 
but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. What's Jesus saying? You're, you're concentrating on outward actions, looking good. You're, you're, uh, you're tithing every tiny little detail, but you're missing the fruit of a changed heart. You're missing justice and mercy and faithfulness. And so New Testament giving changes all of that. It's not about a strict 10% church tax. When Jesus comes in and changes your heart and changes your mind and your attitudes, when we become excited about God's kingdom and seeing His church grow and expand and, and lost people come, uh, being saved, then our hearts are changed and we're filled with generosity and, and we give abundantly, we give cheerfully, and we give exuberantly and we pour finances into the local church and into Jesus' kingdom. And, and for many people in the book of Acts, you know, 10% was just the start. Christians sold houses and land and gave money to the church. It was just, it was just the beginning, 10%. And they gave lots more than, than they needed to or had to. I believe that some individuals and families are so blessed that they could easily live on 50% or 20% of their income and they could give away the rest. Uh, so it's not a 10% church tax that you give grumbling and complaining, but, but you give it because Jesus has changed your heart and you're excited to give in a cheerful way. You know, just a side note, I am, I am so blessed here at Newport to see, you know, junior high and senior high and, and young adults who are, who are giving and tithing regularly and, and who are generously and abundantly giving because of uh, of what Jesus has done in their lives, giving and tithing regularly. So, so these are little seeds that God is planting in you, which sprout and grow to generosity and, and the fun of abundant, cheerful, exuberant giving. Because when you catch the joy of giving, it's hilarious, it's fun, it's exciting. So a religious spirit is all about trying to look good on the outside. And... and um, in Luke 23, Jesus continues to, to scold the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, calls them hypocrites. He says, you clean up the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. And, and you're like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. And, and, and uh, you know, God clearly says in Scripture that that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks on, on what's in people's hearts. And, and finally, in John chapter 8, which is a, a key point to this, to this teaching, is uh, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus sets us free from, from bondage. Free meant... Uh, the slave who was no longer a slave anymore. Free meant uh, no more chains or obligations. No more slave owner who was bossing you around and telling you what to do and jerking on your chain and, and restricting where you could go and what you could do. Second Corinthians 3, now the Lord is the Spirit. and Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I, I think one of the hallmarks of Newport Church that I love so much here is, is our authenticity. Just being real with each other, being honest with each other, without a lot of pretense, without a lot of show, without a lot of formality. I had to laugh a number of years ago when, when uh, one of our kids had a friend over to our house one evening. And, and this friend was so astonished to see the pastor walking around the house in his sweatpants and t-shirt. 
Now, maybe it's going to horrify you, but I don't wear a shirt and tie every minute of the day. You know, when I'm out mowing the lawn, I don't wear a shirt and tie, all right? When I'm out pulling weeds, I don't wear a shirt and tie. And so perhaps uh, uh, people are surprised at, at uh, uh, the authenticity of it, but sometimes I do wear sweatpants and a t-shirt, okay? And that may horrify you, but I'm just being authentic with you this morning. Uh, and I think, you know, all jokes aside, authenticity in a church setting means that we admit sometimes that we're just all messed up uh, in one way or another, and that we all need prayer sometimes, and that sometimes we all need help. Uh, we never have it together all the time. Every one of us is human. We all need each other. We need God's help. We need each other. That's the, that's the power, and that's the beauty of small groups, where we can be authentic together. We can be transparent together. We can, we can love and surround and, and pray for each other. A religious spirit is all about trying hard to work and earn God's love. This touched me directly in my life a number of years ago where I was in a small group where we were studying the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is about God's people, the Christians, who were abandoning some of the key points of Christianity, and they were requiring people to go back and practice things in the Jewish law again. And we were, we were going through that, that study, and I was in a time in my life where I had no responsibilities in the church whatsoever. I, I wasn't doing anything for God. And, and um, as a result, I was feeling just a bit guilty, and I was feeling a bit unhappy, and I was feeling a bit condemned. And, and somehow I had the idea that God loved me more when I was over there working really hard for God. And now I was in this place where I wasn't doing anything for God. And, and it seemed to me like, I think God loves me just a little bit less right now because I'm not doing anything. And my mentality was the harder I worked and the more I accomplished, the more God loved me and accepted me. And, and it was that evening, I remember exactly where I was, I remember exactly who was there. We were studying Galatians, and I realized that God loves me the same. No matter if I'm working hard or if I'm doing nothing, God's love for me is the same. God loves me and accepts me exactly the same, no matter how hard or, or not I'm working. You know, I think one of the blessings of our Pennsylvania German culture here in Pennsylvania in, in this area is that we value hard work. What is the, one of the highest compliments you can pay someone in this area? You're a hard worker. Yeah, you're a hard worker. Yeah, good job. He or she is a hard worker. But you know what? That mindset creeps into the church. If I could just work a little harder, God would love me more. If I could just work a little bit more harder, God would bless me more. And I, I came to the realization back years ago that God just simply loved me for who I was. It wasn't about what I did, not about all my hard work. It was not about earning God's love. But God's love was the same for me no matter the circumstance. 
And Galatians 5.1 says it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't let yourself be put under an old oppressive system. To be a Christian, you have to submit to all these laws. And Paul said, I'm astonished that you're deserting the one who called you. Galatian Christians were losing their freedom and going back to Old Testament law. So to you parents, I would ask a simple but profound question. It's why, parents, why do you love your children? Because of what they do or don't do? Do you love them because they clean their rooms and mow the lawn? I would say most of us would say, no, we love our children not because of what they do, but because of who they are, right? Even when they really mess up, you still love them. Even when they get in trouble, you still love them. You never stop loving them based on what they do. And we have a Heavenly Father that's just like that. You know, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Tevia the Milkman was the, was the main character in, in Fiddler on the Roof. And the, one of the opening scenes is he's, uh, he's got this uh, line of daughters, and he, goes, he loves to go down his line of daughters, and he, he, he would proclaim like... This is mine, and this is mine, and this is mine. And he got to the boyfriend in the end. This is not mine, you know. And, and I believe that God is like that with his children. And I, I think that God loves to brag about his children. I don't know to whom, but to angels or to someone. But I, I think God loves to brag about his children. And he loves to point and say, that's mine. That's my child. Uh, my mother before the days of smartphones, used to keep a little photo album in her purse with pictures of her grandkids. And anytime anyone asked her about her, her grandchildren, she'd whip out this little album and she'd start paging through and says, look, these are my grandkids right here. Now you can have a phone with 2,000 pictures on it. You can do the same thing. But it was just special. She would whip out that little photo album and she, she was so proud to show people the pictures of her, of her grandchildren. And that's, I believe, the way God is. In his, his, he's so excited and, and proud of you. I was going to put a blank screen up here uh, to answer the next question. What are the conditions to God's love? And that's a blank screen because there are none. There are none. No conditions. The, God loves you in spite of your response or lack of response, your hard work or, or not working. God loves you when you're resting. God loves you when you're on vacation. You can't earn it. You can't barter for it. You can't trade good deeds for it. It's God says, I love you because that's who I am. I'm a loving God. And, and perhaps the one challenge for this morning is that we stop striving and working so hard to earn and impress God. Maybe just sit. Maybe just find a hammock. Maybe just find a beach somewhere and rest in his love for you. And we don't have to work hard, strive, earn it. We can just receive it. So how far does this radical freedom go? And, and Paul talks a bit about this in, in Galatians and 1 Corinthians. But, but he says in, in Galatians... It's clear that God has called you to a free life. Make sure you don't use this freedom as an excuse to do whatever you want to do and destroy your freedom. So don't go out and, 
and do things that are going to put you right back into, into slavery again. Don't use your freedom in ways that put you back into chains. And, and the big question in, in Corinth, uh, in uh, Greece, was uh, when you went to the market to buy food and you bought meat, most of the meat available in, in the city of Corinth was, was meat that had already been offered to idols and, and temple sacrifices to, to, the, uh, to the gods of uh, that time. And so Corinthian Christians were wondering, is it okay to eat that meat that's been offered to the idols? I mean, truth be told, 100% of it was left. The idols didn't eat much at all, you know. There was still, there was still a lot of meat left, okay? The idols didn't, the idols didn't uh, eat any of it, you know? <laughs> you know? And, and so there was this question, is it okay to eat that meat? We purchased it at the market. We're dining with friends. And Paul's answer is pretty straightforward. He says, basically, if you're asking this question because you're a Christian, you already know that those idols mean nothing. They're just pieces of wood. They're just pieces of stone. Those idols mean nothing at all. And so to you as a Christian, it doesn't matter one bit about you eating this meat that's been sacrificed to idols. But he said, not everyone has this knowledge. And there may be young Christians, people who've just become Christians around you. And so he warns them, if there are Christians around still unsteady in their faith, and they see you, more mature Christian, eating the sacrificed meat, it could cause confusion in their lives. And and, those who've been maybe tempted to, to go and, and pray to the idols in the past might be tempted to see the meat you know, more than something as it is. While to mature Christians, it was just meat. didn't mean anything all, at all. 1 Corinthians 8, uh, Paul says, Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to dinner for him? Because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. This is the message. A free meal here or there isn't worth it at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So, never go to those idle, tainted meals if there's a chance you're going to trip up one of your brothers and sisters. Now, today... June 2019, we don't deal with the issue of meat and idols. You won't go to Wise Market and find meat that's been offered to idols. But, we, but the principle remains the same for the issues that we do deal with. And the principle is, even though you as a Christian are completely free, be wise and be considerate to not mislead others who might have a conscience against that action. And I believe we see here that God's love is so generous that it makes us want to follow him. And I'm getting to the end here, but I have this really cool reading from Steve Brown's book about Abraham Lincoln. I'm not completely sure this is a a true story, so I'll just give you that caveat to begin with. Uh, It's a story, and uh, it may be true, maybe not. And it says, Steve Brown writes, Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market, and there he noted a young, beautiful African-American woman being auctioned off to the highest bidder. He bid on her, and he won. He could see the anger in the young woman's eyes, 
and could imagine what she was thinking. Another white man who will buy me, use me, and then discard me. As Lincoln walked off with his property, in quotes, he turned to the woman and said, you're free. Yeah, what does that mean? She replied. It means that you're free. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, replied Lincoln, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free and you can go wherever you want to go. Then, said the young woman, with tears welling up in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. God's love is so generous that it makes us want to follow Him. And the last story this morning is from one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, Luke chapter 15. And it's really the chapter that tells three stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the story of the lost son. And to begin this chapter, uh, it explains, Luke explains the context for the, for the stories. And it said this story, these stories were told directly to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and scribes. And they were complaining, they were muttering, they were grumbling that Jesus would spend time with sinners and tax collectors. And he would even have the nerve to eat with them. And, and we come to this third story, the story of the lost son, who takes his dad's inheritance. And, and, and while dad is still alive, the son treats his dad like he's dead. He dishonors him. And he, and he goes, my version, he goes to Vegas on a wild spending spree, blowing all dad's money in a wild, wild living, dishonoring dad, dishonoring the whole family. And everyone heard about it, and it was quite the scandal. The whole family was ashamed, especially the older brother. The older brother, he stayed at home. And what did he do? He worked. He worked in the family farm. Yeah, he was a hard worker. And what happens? The lost son gets to the bottom, has nothing to eat, realizes, I really blew it. I really made a mess of my life. I'm going to go back home. And of course, the story is the lost son comes back home and is royally welcomed by dad. The Bible says father runs to him and welcomes him back. So in the story, who represented the religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes who were grumbling and complaining? I believe it was the older brother in the story, the grumpy, the accusatory, the unforgiving, the lacking grace, and the lacking welcome. Typical religious spirit, pointing his finger and finding fault. And the heart of the father was to watch and to pray and to welcome his lost son. In fact, all these three stories, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. You know, it's the parable, the first one, the parable of the good shepherd who... Shows how God searches out and longs for lost people to come back to Him. And the heart of the father in the lost son story was to throw a party 
celebrate his son coming back home and warmly welcome him. Dad wanted to shout and dance and celebrate. We're going to have barbecue and steaks tonight, baby. And, and the younger son, I don't know how you would have felt if you were the younger son coming back home. He was back home. He was welcomed back to dad's house. He was restored. He was forgiven. He finally had good food to eat. He finally had clothes to wear. He was provided for. He was blessed. He was restored. Did he have a reason to, to shout and dance and celebrate at the party? Yeah, he had a reason to. It was a good time. And, and that's what I believe for, for our churches in this area, for our church here, is that Sunday mornings should be celebration times. We're, we're all a bunch, me and we're all a bunch of younger sons who, who've come back to the Father, aren't we? Who wandered away and have been welcomed back home. And so, uh, worship team, if you come, we're going to put this into, into motion this morning. We're going to, uh, dancing and celebrating what Jesus has done for each of us. Because we are set free, let's celebrate that freedom uh, this morning. So I'm going to finish up with next steps for you after uh, the worship team has, has led us today.
Sarah, could you put the next steps up on the screen for me? So next steps for you this week. Number one, choose to follow Jesus with all of your heart. Number two, ask God to show you ways that you're still stuck in religious spirit and ask God for freedom. Number three, celebrate and revel and dance in the freedom Jesus died to give you. Number four, pray for one or two people to come to faith in Jesus for the first time. So Lord, in the name of Jesus, Lord, I just speak freedom. I declare freedom over this church family today. In Jesus' name, Lord, I come against the the uh, chains, any chains of religious spirit that are still stuck in our mindsets, stuck in our lives and our hearts system. Lord, I pray uh, that you would break through into our hearts this week, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord, let us, let us run exuberantly into the, the freedom that you died on the cross to, uh, to give us. Lord, let us not uh, see that as, as something that's just optional, but Lord, it is a key part of what you died to give us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for freedom today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. I'd like to invite the prayer ministers to come. We'll be here to pray with you this morning. If there's a need or, or a, uh, just a, a mountain that you're walking through in your in your life today. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for, for freedom. We just declare that freedom as we go from here this week. Let us walk in newness of freedom. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray with you this morning.